We are in part three of a series on the Gospel of John, and it is very accurate to look at this Gospel out of the four Gospels and say that the Apostle John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament because his Gospel, his three epistles that bear his name, and the book of Revelation, they are all his documents, and they are the final documents written by any of the apostles. Now, if you have just even a cursory knowledge of the Bible, you know that the book of Revelation is placed last in the scripture. But chronologically speaking, you could take all five of John's books and put them at the end of the scriptural record. As he puts pen to paper, it's more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost and more than 30 years after the other apostles and leaders of the church are basically gone, having been martyred for the faith. And so John is the only original voice left. He's the sole surviving elder of the first century, and it is that way for at least three decades. So when he writes his gospel account sometime after A.D. 90, he really does have the last word on the Lord Jesus. Now, we've been at this for a couple of weeks, and we've already seen that chapter 1 begins with a powerful prologue to the gospel that introduces Jesus as the Word. Everyone say, the Word. He's the Word who was in the beginning. He's the Word who was with God. He's the Word who was God. He's the Word who made all things. He's the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus the last word, the logos, the literal expression of God. That's Jesus. Now that word made flesh was introduced to us also in chapter 1 by John the Baptist, which is our title for him. But scripture doesn't call him John the Baptist. If anything, scripture calls him John the Witness. Because John is the witness of the light, chapter 1 verse 7. He's the witness of the Lamb, chapter 1, verse 29. He's the witness that introduces the world to the God, to God robed in flesh in verse 15 of chapter 1. He's the witness who first calls Jesus the Son of God in verse 18 and 34 of chapter 1. So it's not so much John the Baptist, although his ministry is very much about baptizing people, but he's John the witness. The theme of John's ministry is not me, but him. That is the theme of every Christian who has any sense about who they are and who their God is. We live our lives to say, not me, but him. It's not about my goodness, it's about his goodness. It's not about my righteousness, it's about his righteousness. It's not about what I can do, it's about what he has done for me. Not me, but him. And so it isn't surprising at all with a ministry like that that the first two disciples, whoever followed Jesus, they did so because of the preaching of John the witness. Chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, they're all standing together and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. I'm going to need your help at the back there, Brandon. Before chapter 1 is over, we know the names of four of the 12 disciples who first followed Jesus. We know these names. Andrew, 
Simon Peter, who is called Cephas by Jesus. We know the name Philip, and we know the name Nathaniel. Nathaniel is at first a little bit skeptical of Jesus. We read this in verse 45. Philip finds Nathaniel and says unto him, We've found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. We've found the one that the prophets and Moses and all the law was all about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, he's got it pretty much right. Because Jesus is not the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. He is the son of Mary. But see, what they're saying there is he's in the line of Joseph and that's a messianic line. So he's really saying something powerful and something good. Jesus is the Messiah. We've found the one that the Old Testament pointed to. Now, Nathaniel's a little skeptical of Jesus at first, and he says to Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth is basically like a a, a fish town or something. It's not that important. It's just a it's just a, a poor area of the country. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He thinks Jesus comes from Nazareth. He knows that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He has no idea that although Jesus is living in Nazareth, he was born in Bethlehem. He's the Messiah. When Jesus meets Nathanael, he refers to the patriarch Jacob's vision. You remember this vision. Jacob stopped at a place called Bethel when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. And he saw a ladder, you remember this, a ladder that reached from heaven to earth and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. That's in Genesis chapter 28. The implication is obvious because here's what Jesus says uh, to Nathanael. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The implication is obvious. Jesus is now Bethel. He is now the house of God. And Jesus is also now the ladder that connects heaven and earth and angels do his bidding. Jesus just told this skeptical Nathaniel, oh, you'll find out who I am. You're going to see the glory of God. Before this is over, you'll find out that the Son of Man can command the angels and the Son of Man houses God in a body of flesh. It's amazing. Now, John's gospel has many unique features, and here we see the first of 25 times that Jesus says, verily, verily. 25 times in this gospel, Jesus says, verily, verily. It, it means we would say, truly, truly, but really it's amen, amen. It's, it's something that's so powerful, such a revelation that Jesus wants to draw attention to it. No other gospel uses verily, verily, just John. It only occurs, this double amen only occurs in this gospel. And the very first time is when Jesus says to Nathaniel, verily, verily, you're gonna see heaven open. You're gonna see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the sun of man. There are many unique things about this gospel. For one, um, don't go here if you're looking for the Christmas story. It's not here. There is no Christmas story in John's gospel. 
No baby in a manger in Bethlehem. No shepherds or wise men. No star or angels in the heavens. John knows that the birth of Jesus was well covered by Matthew and Luke when they wrote their gospels some 30 years earlier. And he knows something else. He knows that the truth of the incarnation has been believed and preached by the New Testament church now for more than uh, six decades. It's, it's amazing, this truth that has been heralded. And the gospels that Matthew and Luke wrote to pen the Christmas story, they've been in existence for more than three decades. So... On this and many other doctrines, this is one of the most important things I will say to you about the Gospel of John. On this, the incarnation, and many other doctrines, John assumes something. He assumes that his readers already know what Jesus and his church practiced and preached. He assumes that. After all, if he's writing 30 years after everybody else wrote in the New Testament, and if he's writing 60 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ, 60 years after the New Testament church begins on the day of Pentecost, if that's true, obviously, with six decades of church history under his belt, John assumes that the readers he's writing to know about Jesus. They know about some of these fundamental doctrines like the oneness of God and the incarnation and the new birth experience. He assumes that. He assumes that they know about baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues. And that's why it is critically important. It is the, the, the meaning behind the title of this series. It's critically important to read the gospel of John as the last word the last gospel, to understand that John's writing comes after the other gospels, after the book of Acts, after the New Testament epistles, not before them. It comes after all that. So when John sits down to write his gospel, he's writing not a biography of Jesus, he's writing a theology of Jesus. In chapter 2, we're going to see the first of seven miraculous signs that identify Jesus as the Word made flesh. John spends the first half of his gospel, chapters 1 through 11, summarizing three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Somebody at the back just pull that chart up for me. And this section ends with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is the first of seven signs we're going to see in chapter 2. It's turning water into wine. But before this section is over, we will see the last of the seven signs, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. And then because that happens, the Sanhedrin plots to put Jesus to death in chapter 11. So that's the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 is the prologue. Chapter 1 introduces us to John the Baptist. Chapter 2 through 11, that's the first part of the book. And in that first part of the book, John spends the first half of his Gospel on three years of Jesus' ministry. But then he spends the last half of his Gospel, chapter 12 to the end, on just one week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then we have the prologue in chapter 21, or the epilogue rather, and that introduces us to some extra information about the apostle Peter and his friend John who wrote this book. So, so that's the outline of the book of John. Uh, this gospel, nobody else does that. 
Everybody else spends most of their gospel on Jesus' life and his ministry and his miracles and his teaching. And then in the last two, three chapters, they go to the Last Supper, the crucifixion, uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. They, They go to all of that just at the very end. But not John. He actually spends five full chapters just recounting the conversation Jesus has with his disciples at the Last Supper. It's it's really quite amazing. Now, if you look at the Gospel of John, this first section, Jesus repeatedly says something to his disciples. He keeps saying, mine hour is not yet come. It's not time yet. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. But once you get to the second section, which is the last week of Jesus' life, he begins to declare openly, the hour is come. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. So that last section begins, that last half, begins with the triumphal entry in chapter 12. Then those five full chapters, 13 to 17, just on one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at the Last Supper. This whole gospel, brothers and sisters, is filled with conversations that reveal not just so much what Jesus did or even what he said, but who Jesus is. So let's go all the way back to here and we're going to go to chapter 2 and that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Chapter 2, the miracle here is an unusual one. Jesus turns water into wine. In doing so, he honors the request of his mother and he keeps his friends who were hosting the wedding and had run out of wine, he keeps them from embarrassment. But still, this first miracle, even though it's different, this isn't healing a cripple or opening eyes of blind or raising somebody from the dead. It's, it's kind of menial, isn't it? Uh, turning water into wine, it's like a kitchen miracle. It's like you walk in and pray and your dishes are all done or something. It's a kitchen miracle. Mm, yeah, the Holy Ghost moved on that one. But still, even though it seems to be kind of a menial miracle, this first miracle we are told in chapter 2 and 11 The beginning of miracles, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and it manifested forth his glory. And because of this, it was supernatural. There was no discounting or denying that. And his disciples, remember, his disciples have just literally been chosen. It's like days they've been walking with him. And so his disciples believed on him when they saw him do this miracle. Now, this is interesting to me. Many commentators, you can read all kinds of commentators and books about the gospel of John and they will say something like this to you. Wine is a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus is introducing. It's like new wine, uh, don't put new wine in old wineskins. So wine is a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus is introducing. That's true. But it's far more specific than that. This is a sign, John says. This is the first sign Jesus does. It's far more specific. It's really important to notice exactly where John places this miracle. It's in between John the Baptist in chapter 1 and Nicodemus in chapter 3. And in between them, we have this first miracle of Jesus. At the wedding in Cana, uh, the water pots that were filled with water They were huge stone jars. Look at John 2 and verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Everyone say firkins. 
don't make a recipe at home with using firkins as a measurement because a firkin is nine gallons. That's far too much of whatever you'd put in your recipe. I'm not a cook. So these, these water pots that we talk about, I think sometimes we visualize, you know, they've all got these water pots and they're just carrying them around. They fill them with water and it's these nice little wine bottles, but it's far more than that. They're huge stone jars and the Bible says they contain two or three firkins apiece. So that's between 18 and 27 gallons each. But more importantly is what else is said in that verse. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews. These jars or these large pots, they were used for ceremonial washings, purifying rituals by the Jews. Now, we've already seen mikvah, which is the Old Testament word for baptism, the, the Jewish word, ceremonial washing. We've already seen mikvah in the ministry of John the Baptist. And we will see it again very shortly in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. But right now we see it in the middle of a miracle. It's amazing. It's not placed here accidentally. Before Jesus came to baptize people with the Holy Ghost, John the Baptist came to baptize them with water. Jesus will soon tell Nicodemus that he must be born of water and of the Spirit. And before the servants at this wedding in Cana, before they ever get to draw out new wine, they first have to obey Jesus with the water. He tells them, fill up those pots. Jesus' first miracle also happens at a wedding which is celebrating a covenant. So this is all about covenant. It's all about a purifying washing and it's about wine being drawn forth. Here's what's happening in this very first sign that John lists, the very first miracle Jesus does in this gospel. Jesus says, fill up those purification jars, dip into the water and wine will come forth. Now that sounds really familiar to me. It sounds something like this, repent be purified of your sins, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And you know something else, when you experience that miracle of salvation, you enter into covenant. This miracle happened at a wedding indicating covenant. You say, are you stretching that, Pastor? I don't think so. Because remember that John writes long after the events of the book of Acts. This message of repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Ghost is what the first century church has been preaching for over 60 years. It's just that John gets to have the last word on the subject. So when he looks back six decades after the fact and sees that first miracle again, when with all he knows and with all he's experienced and with all the preaching he's done and all the preaching he's heard, he can't help but see the parallel. Use those purification jars. Take them up. Fill them with water. Dip into the water. And when you dip into the water, you shall receive wine. It's coming up wine. That's what happens to us when we obey the plan of salvation. You repent of your sins. You purify your old life. You dip yourself in water in the name of Jesus. And when you come up, the promise is, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
See, John has the last word. You can't blame him. You can't fault him. He just sees a little more clearly than what other people would have seen. Jesus next travels to Jerusalem for the Passover in this chapter. And uh, he drives the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three gospels, they speak of Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his public ministry. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. But John records this incident at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Is there a conflict? I don't think so. It appears that Jesus actually did the cleansing of the temple twice. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And that's not surprising because the pollution of God's holy temple was offensive to Jesus. You see, it's like pastor said, Jesus stood and said, my house shall be called an house of prayer. Not just a house of preaching or teaching, of ritual or religion, of singing or even worshiping. My house shall be called a house of prayer. So when Jesus walked into the temple and it was all messed up with commerce and business, he got upset about that. Here's the passage in John 2. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the changers' money and he overthrew the tables and he said unto all of them that sold the doves, take these things hence, get these out of here. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples, which again, remember, his disciples are pretty new at this point. They've only walked with Jesus measured in days or maybe weeks. And his disciples remembered that it was written in the Old Testament, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, most people read that little story right there and they conclude something like this. Well, you know what? That's pretty obvious. God doesn't like it when religion is mixed with business. And I would say a hearty amen to that. That's true, but it's far from the whole picture. Jesus' problem with this business wasn't so much that they were exchanging one currency for a temple currency. It wasn't so much that. It was that this business in the temple was a shortcut to the commandments of God. What really has Jesus upset on this day is not that he sees somebody passing a coin to another person. It's not even that he sees an animal in the temple courtyard, in the courtyard of the Gentiles. It's not so much that. It's that he's upset by lazy worshipers. That's what Jesus' problem is. See, it wasn't that the animals that were being sold were not the right type of animal. It was that the individual was supposed to bring their own animal to be sacrificed. God had commanded that they were to raise the animal, ensure that it was without blemish, transport it somehow the many miles to the temple, and then after all that effort and all that time and all that work, they would offer it up to God for a sacrifice. But see, lazy worshipers, they just show up without doing any of the work, making any of the effort necessary, and they'd pass some money to the priest, and the priest would give them temple coins, temple currency, and then they'd just select an animal that those priests said was okay. You know why they were doing that? It was far more convenient for them. Can you imagine? 
living in Israel in the first century, having a little lamb that your kids helped you feed every day, played with every day. And then you have to transport that little spotless lamb the many miles to the temple just so it can be slaughtered in front of your family. But that's the point. It was supposed to cost you something to worship. The sacrifice was supposed to be the very best you had. You were supposed to feel the loss of it when you came to offer a sacrifice. You were supposed to put some energy and some effort and some work under it. You were supposed to be inconvenienced to worship. You were even supposed to wonder, why in the world does God insist that I do this? You see, that's real worship. When you offer to God something that costs you something. That's what David said in 2 Samuel. I will surely buy this threshing floor from you at a price, Arona. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. There, Anybody can worship when the music's hot and the emotion is high and the preacher's loud and the service is fast. Anybody can worship God then. But can you worship God with tears running down your face? Can you worship God when you don't feel a thing? Can you worship God when you don't understand him? Can you worship God when God's dealings with you, they puzzle and ponder your mind and your thoughts. Can you worship God when you can't trace his hand anywhere and you just have to trust his word? Worship is supposed to cost you something. We're a Pentecostal church. We like it loud and fast and exciting and lively. We don't mind when the preacher gets excited and he does laps around here. We don't mind all of that. But the danger for Pentecostals in the 21st century is We've been raised on the internet. We are now officially, psychologically, culturally, we are a consumer culture. We're not used to doing things. We're used to watching things. And most dangerously, we're used to watching things getting done. So it's easy to watch worship happening without worshiping. It's easy to watch preaching happening without responding. It's easy to watch other people go to the altar without ever moving an inch. It's easy to be a consumer Christian in the 21st century. But there's something of ancient times. Jesus tackled it in the temple. He made everybody angry at him at the outset of his ministry. We are literally two chapters in to the gospel of John and Jesus has offended the entire Jewish religious system because he says, wait a minute, God doesn't receive lazy worship. God doesn't receive subconscious, unconscious worship. God is looking for worship that costs you something. I wonder if there's anybody here at CCC after such a powerful weekend and God being so good to us and being able to be in Bible study on a Wednesday in a free country and hear the word of God taught and feel the presence of God in our midst. I wonder if there's anybody that says, I came to offer God something that cost me something. I didn't just come to, I came to give God the best of my life, the best best of my worship, the best of my prayer, the best of my praise. Oh. 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 
Every once in a while, Jesus needs to get rummaging around in our hearts and turn over some tables and kick out some commerce and mess up some business because we need to get rid of all that so there's a pure, clean flow of worship unto God. Oh, my. I have such confidence in you that I know you can do one better than that. Would you lift up your hands and your worship? Lift up your hands and your praise. Lift up your hands and your voice. Lift up your hands and every bit of adoration you have for Jesus. I know it's just Bible study, but see, I brought something tonight that cost me something. You can worship God when you're sick. It'll cost you something. You can worship Jesus when you're tired. It'll cost you something. You can worship Jesus when you're discouraged and depressed. It'll cost you something. But when your worship costs you something, that's high praise to God. That's high praise to God. I like those voices lifted. But you know, better than that, Jesus likes those voices lifted. Oh, yes, God. Oh, yes, God. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Mm. You know, the greatest tragedy of all of this was it was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. That's the very place where the Jews should have been meeting Gentiles and telling them about the one true God. Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple, but they were allowed in the court of the Gentiles. But any Gentile who was sincerely seeking God would be immediately turned off by all the business and all the commerce and all the commotion and all the lazy worship that was going on. To any sincere Gentile, they looked at it and said, that's just like any other religion. And that was all too much for Jesus to take. And so to the chagrin of his brand new disciples, he makes a scene in the temple he just goes turning stuff upside down. And suddenly they remember the words of the psalmist from ancient times. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. God, I'm mad because somebody's blaspheming your name. God, I'm frustrated because somebody's not honoring you. The reproaches of them that reproached you, they've fallen upon me. And the zeal for your house and your holiness and your presence has eaten me up. Zeal simply means devotion, enthusiastic devotion to a cause. But the Hebrew word means to provoke to jealousy. And the Greek word in the New Testament means to be hot or to boil. Literally, zeal is getting stirred up with passion for God. No wonder one of the signs of the end time is people losing their passion for God. Matthew 24, and because iniquity shall abound, Jesus said, the love of many shall wax cold like the flame going out on a candle. And then you can watch it over the next few seconds or a minute 
that the wax begins to harden and it grows cold and eventually brittle. But Jesus said, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying don't lose your zeal. Don't lose your love. Don't lose your passion. Don't lose your hunger. Don't lose your thirst. Don't lose your longing for my presence. Don't lose your hunger for holiness. Don't lose your desire for my word. Don't lose it. Don't let it go. Don't let it cool down. I know every once in a while somebody will say with a snarled up face, well, they'll calm down eventually. I'm 60 years old. I haven't calmed down yet. I'm not intending to. I'm not intending to. Jesus has been far too good to me. His church has blessed my life far too much. His word. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry. Could we just lift that up one more time, that worship and praise? Just, just. We'll, we'll get on. We'll move on. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. But. See, you think you're doing something for God right now? Yeah, but God's doing something in this room right now because healing flows in worship. Deliverance flows in praise. Oh, 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 oh. I love you, Jesus. Woo. David said to Michael when she despised his worship, she said, I, he said, I will become even more vile than this. If you think I'm undignified right now, you haven't seen anything yet. God has been too good to his people. I'm gonna worship God with abandon. I'm gonna worship God and start trying to exalt his deity instead of preserving my dignity. Oh my, Whew. And you can imagine when Jesus says all of that, the Jews are angry. When he does all of that in the temple, they challenge him. Who do you think you are to kick out money changers and overturn tables and tell us to stop this? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do this? And when he answers them, he's prophetic in his answer. Jesus answered and said unto them, this wasn't about your building. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, they didn't get that. They couldn't understand that he wasn't talking about their glorious building. He was talking about his body. Even his own disciples, and we'll give them a break because they're new. But only after his resurrection will they finally understand what he was actually saying. It tells us that in John 2, that it was after the resurrection before they got it. Jesus had a right to cleanse the temple because the temple, that building, that structure, every priest and offering, every feast and festival, every sacrifice, every drop of blood ever shed was only ever designed to point to him. And in the New Testament, God doesn't live in a building crafted with hands. God came in the person of Jesus and that was his body. But listen, only for 33 and a half years, do you know where his body is right now? Do you know where his spirit is right now? Christ in you the hope of glory for you are the temple of the Holy Ghost Paul said oh my Whew. 
Got to move on. Chapter 3 introduces us to Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee who was a ruler of the Jews. He comes to speak with Jesus at night, mostly because he was fearful of the reaction of his colleagues. After all, Jesus had recently cleansed the temple and made a big scene. So he came at night. Nicodemus would eventually become a follower of Jesus. John chapter 7 tells us that Nicodemus defended Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And John chapter 19 tells us that Nicodemus eventually would help Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus' body. But for now, he's not a believer yet. He's just curious about Jesus' miracles, and he's intrigued by his message. And when he comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't waste any time. He hits him straight on with this. John 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, there's that double amen again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? See, he misunderstands. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, here it is again, double amen. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is just flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. I just want to say this. Here we go again. In chapter 1, it's John the Baptist preaching about baptism and the Holy Ghost. In chapter 2, it's water and wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And in chapter 3, it's Nicodemus being told that he must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. Now, he didn't understand exactly what Jesus was saying at first, but as a leader of the Jews, he would obviously be very familiar with the concept of mikvah, ceremonial washing by immersion. And so the context of this conversation indicates that Jesus is definitely referring to water baptism and spirit baptism in verse 5. It's, it's centered here for a reason. In fact, if you just keep reading, read through uh, Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus, and if you just keep reading, immediately after this conversation, John's disciples come to him with a question about baptizing, verse 26, which is also referred to as purifying in verse 25. It's mikvah, it's baptism, it's immersion in water for purifying your life all over again. The image of Baptism as an initiation into God's covenant is everywhere in the gospel of John. Everywhere. Don't ever let anybody talk to you and demean baptism in Jesus' name. Pastor Matt preached it just a little bit ago that every single conversion in the book of Acts, baptism is mentioned clearly. It's as clear on the nose as the nose on your face. And here's what Paul says about baptism in Jesus' name and being a covenant. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. In whom 
also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, notice, by the circumcision of Christ. So here's Paul's comparison. In the Old Testament, the Jews were circumcised in the body of flesh. They were circumcised, the physical procedure, and that initiated them into the Jewish covenant under the law of Moses. Paul's making a comparison that in the New Testament, it is not the circumcision of Moses or the circumcision of the law or the circumcision of the Jews. It is the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Paul just said, there is an action that you can take just as circumcision put the Jewish people into covenant with God. There's an action you can take in the New Testament that puts you into covenant with God. What is that action? What is the circumcision of Christ? Notice the end of verse 11, colon. That means that what's going to happen next is going to amplify what Paul just said. Paul's about ready to explain to us what the circumcision of Christ is or what the covenantal action would be in the New Testament to put you into covenant with God, colon, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. In the Old Testament, there was a physical operation, but in the New Testament, there's a spiritual op operation. In the Old Testament, there's a physical covenant and there's a physical seal, but in the New Testament, there's a spiritual covenant and a spiritual action that takes place, and that action is baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ buried with him in baptism. We are unapologetically pro-baptism around here. We are unapologetically pro-Holy Ghost around here. We are unapologetically pro-repentance around here. We are trying with all of our might and all of our strength and every bit of power that we would have, we are trying desperately to replicate a first century church in the 21st century. A church of power, a church of the word, a church of the spirit, a church of miracles. That's pastor's vision, that's our vision, that's your vision. We don't want to just have a dead, dry, boring religion. We want to have an apostolic church for the glory of God in the city of Fredericton. And that's why we are unashamed to say to people, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, you're used to me being loud sometimes. Get over it. But once again, we need to remember that John is assuming something. He's assuming that his readers already know what Jesus and his church have preached and practiced for the last 60 years. That's why it's critically important to read the Gospel of John as the last word. To understand that John's writing comes after the Gospels, after the book of Acts, after the New Testament epistles, not before them. Reading John in light of Acts is especially important to remember as Jesus leads Nicodemus up 
to one of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture. Nicodemus has been puzzled up to this point. We can read that in verse 10. He's puzzled by all of this. But now Jesus mentions a story that he knows very well. It takes him all the way back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, where because of Israel's murmuring in the wilderness, God judged them with a plague of fiery serpents, and many people were dying. And that's when God gave Moses these instructions. Numbers 21 and 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, a brazen serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, he shall live. Jesus reaches all the way back to the time when God told Moses, you take some brass and you beat it into the very shape of the thing that was killing the people of God. And then lift up that brass serpent on a pole and then you tell everybody, if you will look, you will live. And then Jesus makes a comparison to Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews. He makes a comparison that is absolutely stunning. Jesus says that he who is going to be lifted up on a tree, just like the brazen serpent was lifted up on a pole in the Old Testament. John 3.14. We're headed toward the most famous verse in the scripture for most people. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why, Jesus? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then a parallel verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus just took Nicodemus to the punchline, if you will, of why he came. If you are bitten by a poisonous snake and that venom gets in your bloodstream, the only thing that can save you is anti-venom. Do you know what anti-venom is made from? It's made by taking that poisonous, deadly, fatal venom, placing it in an animal's bloodstream, and letting that animal's blood form antibodies that can neutralize the effects of that venom. Do you know by any chance what animal's blood works best to make anti-venom that can save you from the bite of a poisonous serpent? It just happens to be the blood of a lamb. <laughs> Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 and 8. If you look at the plan of salvation, it's quite astounding and stunning. It's quite miraculous and beautiful. We were sinners. We had failed. We had fallen from our destiny and the position God wanted for us. And because we had bought the lie and because we had been bitten by the venom of sin, it was coursing through our system. The serpent was laughing. God couldn't help us because of his perfection. And man couldn't help us because of his imperfection. And the devil thought he had outwitted the Almighty. But then God took on a body of flesh. 
God and man. The man Christ Jesus. You know why he did that? So he could provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. God loved us enough not to send somebody. He loved us enough that he gave himself a sacrifice on Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who knew no righteousness could become righteous. The lifting up of the brazen serpent was the antidote to death. And the lifting up of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary was the antidote to sin. I don't care how far gone you are. I don't care how far down you are. I don't care how bad you are. I don't care how evil the thoughts that are in your mind are. If you will look to Jesus, you can live. If you will look to the cross, you can be redeemed. He can turn your life around. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross. That's the antidote to sin. In the Old Testament, a serpent was lifted up and it became their Savior. But in the New Testament, the Savior was lifted up and he became like a serpent, made sin for us. Jesus became the lie without ever having lied. Jesus became every kind of filthy, debased, debauched sin you can imagine. Yet he never sinned, but that sin was put on him. You know why that sin was put on him? You know why he took that sin on himself? So he could take it off of you, so he could get it off of you, so you wouldn't have to labor and live under it. John 3, 16. Many people would call it the most famous verse in the whole Bible. But John 3, 16 was written 60 years after Acts 2.38. So the New Testament church never technically preached John 3.16. It wasn't written when they were living. But they sure did lift Jesus up. You see, that's what happened just before Acts 2.38, Acts 2.36. God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. You got to look to him if you want to live. You got to look to him, the one who was crucified, the one who was buried, the one who rose again. You got to look to him if you want to live. You got to look to him if you want to be saved. And so just before Acts 2.38, which is our candy stick, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He said, you got to lift Jesus up. You got to look to him. He's the one that was lifted. He's now Lord and Christ. He only came in a body of flesh temporarily. That was God in that body of flesh. That wasn't the eternal Christ. That was 33 and a half years when Almighty God decided that he was going to wrap himself in flesh That flesh hurt like you hurt. That flesh got tired like you get tired. That flesh had issues and problems and weaknesses just like you have issues and problems and weaknesses. But in that flesh was the spirit of almighty God. In that flesh was the spirit that had formed the world, that had made the planets, that had crafted the the mountains and the streams and the rivers and the valleys. And that's why when he went to the cross, It was different than somebody else going to the cross. God couldn't help us because of his perfection. And man couldn't help us 
because of his imperfection. That's why we read about the God-man. God made flesh. God manifest in the flesh. So the New Testament church, they never technically preached John 3.16. I know they believed it, that God came to, and he loved the world so much. I know they believed it, but they never technically preached those words. Those words had not been written any time during the book of Acts. But they sure did lift Jesus up. And when they lifted Jesus up, miracles happened. And when they lifted Jesus up, people were joyfully converted by the thousands into the church. And when they lifted Jesus up, miracles started happening everywhere. And when they lifted Jesus up, cities were changed by the presence and the power of God and by the preaching of his servants. When they lifted Jesus up, John in his gospel will later refer to Jesus being lifted up as a sacrifice in chapter 8 and Jesus being lifted up in worship in chapter 12. In the Old Testament, it was a serpent lifted up on a pole. There was nothing special about the pole. But the best kind of pole to put that serpent on was a high pole so people could see it. Because the higher Moses could get that serpent lifted up, the more people could see it. And when they could look at it, they could live. The higher we can lift Jesus up, the more God is going to respond to that evangelism, to that preaching, to that teaching, to that singing, to that worshiping, to that praying. The only virtue in that pole was its height. The higher, the better. The only virtue in you living for God and worshiping God and praying and following the leadership of pastor and listening to preaching, the only virtue in all of that is this. The higher we can lift Jesus up, the more Jesus can do through us for this world. That's why John records these words of Jesus. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That's why it's important not to be a spectator in 21st century Pentecost. That's why it's important to make every service count. That's why it's important for us to have prayer meetings and Bible studies and all of that because the higher we can lift Jesus, the more men and women, boys and girls can be drawn unto him. I'm done. Would you stand to your feet Jump to your feet if you got the strength and just lift up your hands and lift up your voice and worship him because Jesus promised and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. John said it's got a dual meaning. It's lifted up in sacrifice, but it's lifted up in worship too. They come together when you worship God and you thank him for Calvary. Calvary was the sacrifice and your worship is the lifting. I lift him up and I praise his name and I thank him for everything that he has done for me. Even on a Bible study night when we're supposed to be kind of saintly and sedate. No, I've got a praise in my heart and I've got a praise on my lips for the one who came down so I could be lifted. If he can lift me out of sin, I can lift him with my praise.